0: Father, I I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify this atmosphere, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would clear my mind so that um, it's the Spirit of God who's doing the heavy lifting, that the cross of Christ would be exalted, Lord, Um, that your people would be edified, Lord that the lost under the sound of my voice would be gloriously translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. Father, that the enemy would have his mouth shut and that you would gladden our hearts in your supremacy and all this for your glory. We plead with you in Christ's name for this. Amen. All right. Let's continue. So as I said, Entry-level classes always have the designator 101, right? I want to talk to you this morning from this text, the Lord's Prayer and Surrounding Verses, on prayer 101. Whether you would consider yourself a freshman in the school of prayer or a graduate student in the school of prayer, a brand-new Christian or a Christian that's got a few miles on the tire, you never move past your need for prayer 101. And that is because prayer, I think it is easy to say, truthful to say, prayer is the most difficult discipline in the Christian life to be consistent with. Our prayer lives tend to be up and then down, right? Sometimes we are sailing away and praying a lot in our prayer life, and other times we're hardly praying at all, if at all. Sometimes it is very enjoyable to pray. We're in seasons like that. And other times, if we're honest, prayer seems kind of dead, right? And ritualistic. Sometimes we are praying in great faith, and sometimes we're praying without much faith at all, as it were're just throwing up our prayer, right? Prayer is the most difficult discipline in the Christian life. There is, I, I don't think there's a, a discipline in the Christian life that needs more constant attention, persistent cultivation, and 24-7 intentionality than that of prayer. The disciples saw Jesus do a whole lot of things, right? You know the one thing they asked Jesus to teach them to do was, hey, Lord, teach us to raise the dead. They didn't say that. Hey, Lord, teach They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because they know it is a difficult thing to do. And so I, I don't know where you're at in your prayer life. I suppose that people are at all different places. But I want to preach to you as plainly as I can from this very familiar passage and surrounding verses on prayer 101. I think there's seven truths that wherever you're at in your prayer walk with God will raise your prayer life in your everyday life. So you should have an outline. You all with me? All right, here we go. First of all, verses 7 and 8 tell us, don't pray like a pagan, parentheses, but pray your butt off, or as I put it here, pray persistently. Let me look at those verses again with you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pagan prayer is prayer that is rooted in mindless repetition. What do you think I mean by pagan, though? I take that from verse 7 It's the word Gentiles, you might say non-Christians. Pagan or non-Christian or Gentile prayer majors on two things. Repeating over and over and over the names of the gods or goddesses that you're seeking to invoke and hope that at some point they'll say, all right, enough, already! just shut up, I'll, I'll do it. And repeating the same phrases Over and over and over and over. Can you think of an example in the Old Testament and the New Testament of such mechanical, mindless repetition, a.k.a. pagan prayer? If you were to turn over to 1 Kings 18, you would find the prophets of who? Baal. It says that they prayed and shouted and cried out and danced and cut themselves, and became more frantic and more frenzied as the hours went on as they prayed from the morning to the noon. And by the way, you know what the prophet Elijah said when those gods didn't answer the prophets of Baal? Maybe your God is in the outhouse. He had a little bit of sarcasm in him. You go to the New Testament, I believe it's Acts 18. Do you remember? And this is what happens when the gospel roots in a community. It starts to shut down illicit trade. The idol makers are losing business because people are coming to faith in Christ. People are burning up their books of curious arts. What would it look like? What kinds of things would be shut down in our community, right? If the gospel was really reaching to the neighborhoods like it can. Well, they didn't like it. And when that happens here, people won't like it. There will be blowback. Just know that. And so Acts 19, actually, verse 34, tells us that for two hours straight, They chanted a kind of prayer, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they went on and on and on in this mindless, mechanical, repetition, pagan prayer. I had just been married, it was just before we were married, I talked Susan into going to this Catholic service with me. Do You remember, we went in early, and this lady, and I, I know you don't believe me, I actually got someplace early, but I did this time, okay? Once in my life. And this lady prayed over and over, Hail Mary, if you know the prayer. And in, in my lost thinking, I thought, oh, that is so spiritual. The way she's repeating that prayer over and over and over, and I don't know I can't remember what you said, babe, but like that's just weird or creepy or all of the above, and I would say that as I look back, it's like Muslims preach the same prayer five times a day, facing the same direction. It's pagan prayer. I remember when I coached down at uh, and the Bontragers were down there too. We first moved here the first few years. Our kids played some football down at McCabe Field, not that far from here. And at the end of practice, the head coach of one of the teams would have everybody chant the Lord's Prayer very, very quickly, like mindlessly, right? Christians are not immune from pagan-type prayer. Remember the, uh, well, I'm dating myself here, but several years ago, there was this fad, uh, the Prayer of Jabez. You ever seen one of those T-shirts? My parents went to Vegas, and all I got was this T-shirt. I once saw a T-shirt that said, I prayed the Prayer of Jabez, and all I got was this T-shirt, okay? It was kind of funny to me. Laugh with me, please, okay? (laughs) But they were using that prayer mechanically, formulaically, that would somehow invoke God to do something. I remember reading a a Babylon Bee article. It was pretty funny. Uh, Man sets Guinness Book of World Records for the number of father gods he fits into a prayer. He's able to say 97 father gods in a 42-second prayer. Boom. That's it is. Christians are not immune from this kind of thing at all. But at the root of pagan prayer is the idea... That we can somehow get to God by our own efforts, whether it's through our zeal or persistence or just impressing God with our prayers, some form of manipulation. But if you were here for our very first Wednesday prayer meeting of the year, the third Wednesday of January, we talked about how prayer is the blood-bought privilege of every believer, right? We don't get to God, the blood of Jesus Christ gets us to God, right? Hebrews 4 because we have a high priest Jesus the son of God who's passed into the heavens for us let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need it's the blood of Jesus Christ that does that but i added the second part to point 1 while god is totally against mindless mechanical repetition that is trying to somehow manipulate him god is all for Pleading from a believing and expectant heart. Hebrews 11.1 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that draws near to God must believe, A, that he exists, and B, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I don't want us to miss this point. Do you know in the garden, Jesus prayed the same thing over and over and over? Matthew 26. Do you know that Jesus sometimes prayed all night, Luke chapter 6? Did you know that Paul, not once, not twice, but three times, asked the Lord to remove the thorn and only stopped praying that when God made it clear that, no, that was his plan for him? Do you know that some 26 times in Psalm 136, a prayer, you have this refrain, the steadfast love of the Lord continues forever. Do you know that Anna Worship the Lord day and night in the temple, praying and fasting, Luke chapter 2. You know that according to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, not only ask and seek and knock, but keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Pastor Cleet will be preaching from that text in two weeks. Did you know that Jesus told the story of a nag of a woman who wouldn't shut up, who just kept on asking an unjust judge to respond in justice, and he finally does just to to shut her up. And he told that story, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 1, so that people would not lose heart but continue praying. So let's read this in context. Don't pray like a pagan, but still pray how? Persistently. Point number two, don't over-theologize. Don't overthink your prayer. Because I I, I can hear somebody saying, and invariably someone has done it somewhere, maybe somebody here. You read verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Somebody has said this. Because God already knows what we need, right? He's either going to do it or he's not. So why pray? It's overthinking it. It's over-theologizing it. People do it all the time. If the Bible teaches the doctrine of unconditional election, and it does, right, then why would I pray for someone to get saved? If the Bible teaches that God is the one who is absolutely sovereign over everything, he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah said, and from ancient times things are not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my good pleasure If that's the God we worship, then why would I ever pray that he would change some events in history in response to prayers? That's called overthinking prayer. That's over-theologizing prayer. God's mind is so much bigger than ours, right? So what are four reasons you should pray? Well, one, because God commands us to pray. It's a privilege that he commands us to. He commands us to pray for our good and his glory. Do not, in any theological area, let the mysteries of God keep you from obeying the plain commands of God. And prayer is a plain command. Second of all, we should pray because God actually responds in history according to his will to the prayers of his people. Just ask Hezekiah that. He got some extra years tacked on to his life. I know you're saying, well, that's all anthropomorphic. Okay, it is, but still, don't over theologize. Or how about this? When Jonah preached the message of repentance to the city of Nineveh, Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, when God saw that they repented from the evil that they were doing, he relented from the disaster he was going to bring upon them, and it is very emphatic, and he did not do it. Which leads to the third reason we ought to pray the God who ordains the ends. Ordains the means to that end. And part of the means is prayer. If God has ordained somebody to get straight A's, maybe He's ordained that they're gonna study their butt off as well, right? If God is ordained that someone will come to faith in Christ, certainly is ordained that they will hear and somebody testifying to the gospel to them, right? But the last reason I say that we ought to pray, and there's many, many more, is because God delights in hearing the prayers of his people. And answering them according to his will, Psalm 50 verse 15, "Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me." Proverbs 15:8, "The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayers of the upright are a delight to him. Our father loves to hear it when we bring our prayers to him. So the second thing I want to say from this text is don't overthink. Don't over-theologize prayer. Take God at his word. Third of all, this text reminds us that we are to pray both privately but also corporately or publicly with others. Where do you see that? Well, notice that Jesus does not say, hey, guys, pray this way, verse 9, my father. He doesn't say verse 11, Give me my, this day my daily bread. You might say, well, it was a group of them asking him to pray, but even if it was a group asking if he wanted them to pray that way, singular, he could have used the singular. It's making the point that, yes, we we, we go into our closet, and we talked about what that means and what that doesn't mean last week, right? But we also pray corporately. And as I was just thinking about that, I thought, if someone never prays privately, but they pray publicly, public prayers might be a sham. They're not going to ring deep, are they? They're true. And I'm not talking about fancy words or nothing like that. Sometimes it seems the deepest prayers are the plainest prayers, right, from the newest believer, right? And if you only pray privately but you never pray with somebody else, I wonder how deep you're really going in prayer. Because when you commune with God, you are freshly reminded that it's a, he's got a kingdom and a family and a mission that's a lot bigger than just you, right? And you know you need to yoke hands with others praying the same way. I just wanted to hit that real quick. Our first prayer meeting, the one of January, was super well attended, okay? The next one wasn't as, as well. I'm, sickness, travel, I get all that. I'm not trying to, like, be legalistic, but I am trying to say... The church that ain't praying together is just playing together, right? We should passionately pursue the Lord together. Third Wednesday every month, fasting, prayer, feasting. Number four from verse 9, we should pray. And I, I don't know. the This is the best way I know how to put it, okay? Maybe you can think of something better. You can shout it out. We should pray both relationally and reverentially. A surefire way to get off track in prayer or never get on track is to not be clear about the God you're praying to or having a very skewered or lopsided view of this God. Verse 9 tells us he is a father and he's also in heaven, right? So he's near us, but he is above us, right? We come to him as a children comes to a father, but also as a subject comes to a king, our father who is in heaven. Let me, let me start with father. And it, it, it's a shame that this part even needs to be said, but i got to say it. It does not say our mother. It does not say, as some modern translations are putting it, our father-mother. There are people today teaching that the reason God revealed himself in the masculine is because he knew the bible was given into a really patriarchal world and that people would never accept the word of god unless he accommodated them. You if you think that you just revealed what you think about inspiration that the bible is not supernaturally inspired. Now yes, sometimes god does use female analogies to talk about him. Jesus said As a hen, you know, as a hen receives its chicks under her wing, so I would have received you. Yeah, a maternal kind of quality. But when God says we should pray our father, it wasn't because he was accommodating. It's because that's who he is. He is a father, right? Our father, he says. Now, the idea of calling God father may not seem radical to us, but I'm telling you in the Old Testament it was really radical. I tried to trace down this morning, I just couldn't, how many times God is referred to in the Old Testament, Elohim, Jehovah-Jireh, all all those names, right? I mean, just thousands upon thousands. Only 14 times he's referred to as a father, 14 times out of thousands and thousands. And it was not the practice of prayer for people to refer to God as father. I know that seems so outlandish to us today, right? In fact, we've become overly familiar in many cases with that. You ever heard somebody say, we're all God's children? You ever heard somebody, of all humanity, you ever heard somebody say that? He's the father of us all. Listen, if you want to be faithful to Scripture, you can't say that. God is the creator of all. Everyone's beautifully made in God's image, totally to pray, but also imago Dei, right? But Ephesians 2, 1 says this, listen, Christian brothers and sisters, before Christ, this is who you were, and if you're outside of Christ, this is still who you are. i, I got to love you enough to tell you that. Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in trespasses and sins, right? Yet, yeah, right? Ephesians 2.2 2 says that we were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.3 says we were children of wrath. And Romans 5.10 says we were enemies of God. But this God, who must deal with sin, as we've learned about in Sunday school afresh, in love sent his son to die for sinners such as that, such as us. And if you repent of your sin, my friend, if you repent of your sin, this is what happens. Christ takes away your sin and you're declared righteous in his sight. You're no longer a son of disobedience, you're a son of delight. You're no longer a child of wrath, you're a child of the Father. Galatians 4, and I shared this verse with some uh, dear lady in the congregation this morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those of us under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're his sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into your heart, whereby you cry, Abba. So we, we pray to God as Father. And if you, if you don't, listen, this is not, I'm going to talk about this in just a minute. This isn't like a rigid formula we follow mechanically. Yeah, we don't want to turn the Lord's Prayer into a pagan prayer. But that said, if you typically don't pray to God as your Father, I want to encourage you to do that. To meditate on the fact that I am a child. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the living God. He's my Father. You say, well, I had a terrible father. You might have. Tragically, in a fallen world, many have. But even if you had a good father, we're nothing but chump change compared to the father, right? Whoever you are. And so I just want to say, you pray to God as your father, our father. Really, I don't know who who this is for, but I think it, it might even revolutionize your prayer life if you think of a child coming to a father. Now, He says, who art in heaven, the old version, who is in heaven, also in heaven. The fact that he is a father is no license to be flippant with him. You know that, right? No license to be flippant. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does it all that he pleases. Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord looks down he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Just because we come to him in a filial relationship doesn't mean we come to him in a flippant relationship. Now, there may have been, and I say may with quotation marks, and I'm not so sure, but there may have been times when Christians so emphasized the lordship of God to the exclusion of the love of God. But if we're living in one of those two polar opposites, we're living in a time when people really just talk about the love of God without the lordship of God. So they're not even really understanding, right, the love of God. Church in Ann Arbor, when I drop Claire off at the University of Michigan, there's a church that says, no fire in brimstone. It's got a certain flag with it, as you can imagine. I wonder if they've ever read Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire. How about that? And I just felt pressed to to move into that a little bit more this morning. I I, I pulled a few quotes last minute I want to share with you. This one's from the Bible Project. They do little videos that summarize books of the Bible. This one's on Leviticus. He writes, here's the takeaway from Leviticus. God is dangerous. He's not a warm, fuzzy feeling or or a gentle, doting grandfather in the sky. He's a dangerous, all-powerful, and consuming spiritual being, and drawing too close to him without the proper precautions in place can have devastating consequences. As Nadab and Abihu. Despite that, God wants to live among His people, and He wants us to draw near to Him. And here's a quote from a guy writing on the famous line from Chronicles of Narnia. I promised myself I would never quote from the Chronicles of Narnia because this pastors do it all the time, but, but I am right now, okay? One line about Aslan. He is not safe, but he is good. You guys know that line, right? This is what he wrote. Growing up, my mental image of Jesus was usually the paintings that I saw hanging on the wall of so many churches I would visit or attend. I'm guessing most of you know the pictures I'm talking about. I jokingly would refer to them as Surfer Jesus, the Caucasian, that's white, long-haired man with a neatly trimmed beard, looking with longing off in the distance. This Jesus was safe. He really wasn't all that threatening. I mean, we knew theologically that Jesus was strong, but we didn't talk about that very much. My mental picture of Jesus was that he was weak, even as I might not say that verbally. Lewis, however, in this description of Aslan, turns that idea on its head. He pictures for us a royal king, a ruler that is capable of anything, but one who always leads us in a good way. The idea of a good but not safe Jesus can be hard for us, particularly in the American church, to follow. That's a good quote. People talk about he gets us. But that doesn't mean anything until we get him for who he really is. And I don't want to leave it to a Madison Avenue advertising company to give me a full picture of Jesus. Now, I seize any opportunity to preach the gospel, including that campaign. But let's just keep it real, okay? We prayed, and I'm going to come, this is going to, Jesus, this is so important to Jesus, I'm just going to stop here and get to the fourth point, Get point. a little more space for your fifth and sixth points because this is kind of the heavy lifting of this message. Fourth of all, pray God-centered prayers. Pray God-centered prayers. Now, it is important to note as we move into the heart or belly of the Lord's prayer that this was not given us to just pray rigidly word for word. It's okay to pray it together mindfully, not mechanically, right? But notice Jesus does not say, pray then these exact words, right? What does he say? Pray then like this. In other words, here's a pattern. These first three repetitions are centered squarely on God. That's why I say pray God-centered prayers. First, as we'll see on his name. Second, as we will see on his kingdom. And third, as we see God's will, name, kingdom, will. He starts off, hallowed be your name. What's he saying there? He's saying, God, may your name be holy, to which you ought to say, well, wait a second. I think it already is holy. It is, but our understanding of God isn't holy necessarily, right? So it's a way of saying, may your name be treated as holy. May your name be revered in the church and in the world. Did you know that in the Bible, when people come into the presence of God, they don't high-five God? you know what they do? Bow down, fall on their face, take off their shoes. They're in fear. They're in awe. Sometimes they're in downright terror. They're staggered by his glory. The new covenant does not say Hey, hey, come on, y'all chill out. Since Jesus has come, things are just so much different. So do whatever you want, come however you want, and worship however you want. The book of Hebrews, a book that lays out the glory of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, doesn't say, hey, 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 y'all hey, chill out. Let us therefore offer to God light and casual and lighthearted worship because you know, like, your God is totally dope and chill. Look at what it's, listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 11. I already quoted verse 29, now 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Hmm. The first petition then here, Hallowed Be Your Name, refers to which of the commandments back in the Decalogue, which is repeated in the New Testament. We ought not to take the Lord's name in vain, right? It's part of our responsive reading. I'm not trying to be legalist or anything like that here. But when people say, for instance, Oh, my God, or my God, You're blaspheming the name of the Lord. Well, I'm not even thinking of him. And that's the point. You text, OMG. You just took God's name and went like that in the mud. More than that, when we bear the name of a Christian, and we don't walk that out in the workplace, in the family, right, in all those spheres of life, we're blaspheming the name of the one we bear. So, God centered prayer prays God's name to be hallowed in our words, in our walk, and yes, even in our gathered worship. Alistair Begg says, We ought not to be the man who, during singing time, kind of jingles his coins in his pocket and thinks, hmm, I'm glad somebody next to me is singing. He says, That's a form of blasphemy. And we ought to have a holy jealousy for God's name, that when it is trifled and trampled upon and twisted in in, in the secular place, that we rise up and there's a a holy angst there. That we just don't say, oh, I'm not going to say anything, but no. (laughs) You say God can defend himself, of course, but he also tends, tells us to bear his name in righteousness, right? Read through Isaiah, how many times he says, I will do this for the sake of my glory. I will do this for the sake of my name. So when his name is not being glorified wherever, it hurts us. Hallowed be your name. And then he says we need to pray your kingdom come. This prayer recognizes the supremacy of God's kingdom over every other kingdom. You think of the, um, of the great kingdoms of antiquity past, Babylon and Assyria. They're nothing but footnotes in long-forgotten books, in old libraries. that haven't been pulled off the shelf in 72 years, and they were the kingdoms of the day. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Hitler's Third Reich ended in utter disgrace. The British Empire no longer rules the waves, and America as a contemporary superpower trembles on the brink of moral collapse. You see, earthly kingdoms, they rise and they fall. Not God's kingdom, not God's kingdom, not God's kingdom. It's doing nothing but rising. It's rising. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray, first of all, to the people of God that the kingdom of God would raise in my life, that I would bear more kingdom fruit. Lord, help me to bear more fruit. And then we pray evangelistically that his kingdom would surge forth, that a lot of people, maybe somebody here this morning, you would get Colossians 118. 118 that you will be translated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. We pray for that. We prayed our last midweek gathering. Lord, give me a burden for the loss like I've never had. And give me a boldness to, 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 to say something about it. And you, I'm not going to mention names because he wasn't doing it for notoriety. He did the humility bit. There was, a, there was a man who wept before us, that he, he was worried more at times about social capital than the spiritual estate of those around him. Isn't that awesome sometimes? So we pray, your kingdom come and you use me. And then we also pray and pray your kingdom come. We pray for the return of Jesus Christ. The same Bible that said he came a first time and he did, says he's coming back again. Somebody noted that Christians used to sing about the second coming a lot more than we typically do. There are, I can't remember how many 31,000 verses in the Bible, but the second to last verse in the Bible, Revelation, second to last verse. We should pray this. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So we pray for his return. We pray, hallowed be your name. We pray your kingdom come. And then we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you notice some overlap with these requests. That's why I say it's a pattern, not a rigid formula. But going back to what I said, don't overthink this one. Don't overtheologize. Well, Are we talking about his will of decree, whatever comes to pass? Are we talking about his revealed will? L- listen, I love the way John MacArthur cuts through all of this. He says, quote, God is sovereign, but he's not independently deterministic. Looking at God's sovereignty in a fatalistic way, thinking, what will be will be, absolutely destroys faithful prayer. And faithful obedience of every sort. This is not a high view of God's sovereignty, but a destructive and unbiblical view. Listen, is it God's will for marriages to break up? It's not. It happens, right? And we come alongside those who have, no second class citizen in God's kingdom. But that's not God's will, according to the seventh commandment, right? So we pray for faithfulness in marriage. Is it God's will that people go up on campuses and shoot people up? Or shoot people up on the streets here every week? Is that God's will? No, that's sixth commandment stuff. So we pray we pray against that. Is it God's will, you tell me, that at holocaustal proportions, pre-born image bearers are aborted in the city every day? That's sixth commandment stuff. We pray against it. Is it God's will that a six-year-old can go to school and their teacher can say, oh, you're not a boy, you're actually a girl, or vice versa, or at any age? No, we pray against that madness, Genesis 127. So we pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is. I I, got to fly. I got to fly. I'm just pray God-centered prayers. There's three of them right there, right? Six of all, hey, 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 pray for your needs. It's okay. He tells us to pray for your needs. The next three petitions are daily human needs. Can't remember who it was. Somebody, somebody said, you should write on your, the fly leaf of your Bible. I love this. I am God's personal concern. Because child of God, you are. I am God's personal concern. He begins with, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm so spiritual. If I would written this, I wouldn't have started with that one among human needs. I would have gone to the sin stuff, right? And most of us would have done that, right? Well, why would you put material needs against spiritual stuff? Why? Because God cares about the whole person. That's why. And here he said, pray for your daily bread by extension, not just food, but anything that we need materially. Because Jesus cares for all of us. So we unabashedly ask him to take care of our material needs, all of them. It's also true. I reminded a guy in the sauna at Powerhouse Friday. He started talking about how this country is so poor. And I said, man, there are real financial struggles that people have. Most of us have had them at different levels and different ways. But the reality is the poorest American is far richer than the vast majority of people living on the face of the earth right now. And if we can't at least ask God for our daily bread so, so, it's because it's so consistent, don't you think we ought to thank him for our daily bread? That does not a meal among many things furnish just an opportunity to do that. He goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we, also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if I'm truly in Christ, can I, re- can I lose my salvation? Can I? No, I didn't put myself in his hand in the first place. He scooped me up by sovereign grace. If I really am a Christian, I can't lose my salvation, but I can lose the sweetness of fellowship with my Father by unconfessed sin and grieving the Spirit, or here harboring a heart of unforgiveness. Do you forgive others, or do you hold on to their sins against you? What would your spouse say about What would your sibling say about that? What would your child say about that? What would your parents say about that? What would your friends? Do you forgive others or do you hold on to their sins? Do you confess sins to God that you commit? Maybe no one else knows about. A lot of our sin no one else knows about, right? Or are you careless about that and thoughtless about that? Now, this particular one is so important that we're going to end the message with an amplification on this particular prayer because that's what Jesus does. But he ends this part by saying, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, a couple weeks ago, I addressed the connection between James 1.13, which says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, evil, but ne- and neither does he tempt anyone, but everyone is tempted when they're drawn away of their own lust and enticed. I had I, How do I reconcile the tension between that and the Spirit, as we saw a couple weeks ago, leading Jesus into the wilderness, expressly to be tempted? Well, you have to listen to that message. But the short of it is this. Testing is ordained by God. But the means of temptation can, come from various secondary causes. Idea, therefore, I think is this. Father, please don't let me succumb to temptation. Please don't leave me in the throes of temptation. I need your help. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells the story of two men condemned to be burned alive at the stake by Bloody Mary and the Catholic Church. One man boasted that I am so grounded in the gospel. I'm going to play the man there is no way I'm going to recant. I'm going to hold fast. The other guy, even the thought of the fire just brought him to tears. And night after night, as they're locked up in that cell, he's pleading with God, God, I, don't, I can't do this. You're going to have to come through. I don't have the strength. Please help me, on and on. And, and the confident one said, stop being such a blubbering wimp in every old day English speak. That's what he said. But do you know that when the appointed day for them to be burned to the stake, came at the first sight of that fire. The confident man crumbled and recanted and said, no, I'm wrong about Jesus Christ being the only way. It's the church and all, this other, all these issues going back then. And the man, the man who was so doubtful, He was bold to the end, and as his body literally burned away, he was singing praises to God. That's the the spirit of this request right here. Lead me not into temptation, and when I'm there, deliver me from evil. There's a debate among commentators, is it evil generically, which comes from the evil one, or is it the evil one, the devil expressly? I don't know. But I do know this, the same idea. A true believer not only wants forgiveness of sins, they also want freedom from that sin. When God does this miraculous work of regeneration and brings you into his family, he not only signs your adoption family, papers and says, welcome into my family. He signs your enlistment papers and says, welcome to the fight. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness in high places. I hasten on to the very, very last point. I would put it this way from verses 14 and 15. You have to put feet to your prayer. Look how he puts it. Last night we were going through the text in preparation for today, and our discussion really landed on verses 14 and 15 because, as I said, uh, we're talking about this as a family, this is the only one of the petitions that he actually expands on and amplifies. It's so important. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Generically, I would say, answering this, this second point, put feet to your prayer, is you can't pray one way and live another way. You just can't. For example, you can't pray, give us this day our daily bread and not do anything. Now, just sit on your hands. Lazy. The Proverbs talks a lot about laziness, right? any man won't work, let him not also eat, the the Scripture says, if you can. You can't pray for somebody to get saved and never seek opportunity to actually, with your own lips, declare the gospel to them. But specifically, the point he's saying is you can't pray for forgiveness and not be willing to forgive others. A man once told John Wesley this, I don't forgive others, to which Wesley retorted, well then, sir, I hope you never sin. Think about that. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, a man or a woman can go to hell by not forgiving just as much by not believing. Think about that. Is he saying we earn forgiveness by forgiving others? We earn forgiveness from God by forgiving others. Is that what he's saying? No, He's saying that if you have received forgiveness from God, one of the manifestations, one of the, one of the proofs of that is you will, you will forgive others. Forgiven people forgive. Does that mean it's easy all the time? Does that mean it's not a struggle? No, of course not. It can be very hard to do when you've been hurt very wickedly and badly. Of course, of course. Read the story of Corrie Ten Boom and the Nazi prison card she came across many years after being in the camp. It's tough. But when you see the enormity of your sin that was placed on Jesus Christ and the wrath of God that poured out of him for that sin, you're like, I-, I need to bend this vertical forgiveness horizontally to others. Maybe as I close here, there is one prayer that somebody here needs to pray that you have never prayed before. If the music team would come, that would be awesome. And the prayer would go like this. It's from Luke 18, 13. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the Greek, it's not a. It's actually, there's a definite article there. It's the. Because when God, the Holy Spirit, really works in a man or woman's heart, they stop playing the comparison game. For all you know, you're the worst sinner out there because as, as much as your heart is deceitful above all things, to the degree that the Spirit has let you see your heart, you understand you are the sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus <laughs> said, this man, well, you read the text, The idea he walked away forgiven. And the reason Jesus can forgive sinners is because he bore your sin on the cross. If you are one who will come to him, you can know that he bore your sin on the cross and he was buried, and he rose again. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are, but what are you waiting for, man? What are you waiting for, woman? What are you waiting for? It's a point man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. He would receive you. He would receive you. He would receive you. This is what they said about Jesus. Some people didn't like him. This man received sinners. Yes, he did. More than that, he died for them. And he would receive you. So as we sing, why don't you say, Lord, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, and I I want him to be the Lord of my life. If you need counsel, we're not going to lead you through some little prayer. People have been led through a prayer and, and are still lost. But like, it's like this. If you're on a roof and you start falling, what do you instinctively do? You grab onto something. I've been there. Grab onto a gutter and pull the gutter halfway down. And if you all of a sudden see that you're lost, it's because God's kindness of showing you what you really are and you want to reach out, that's God's grace. So hold, reach out to Jesus. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you have maybe recited this prayer before. Not a bad thing to do. A very good thing to do. It ends with the words often, but thine is the power. It the go? kingdom, The kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Well, that's actually a scribal edition. It's not in the best and earliest manuscripts. However, it really is a great ending for two reasons. Number one, it's from 1 Chronicles 29. Pastor is going to close us with a benediction after one song. He's going to read that which is often added on to this verse. And second of all, it's a reminder that the ultimate purpose of our prayer is the glory of God. So what would it look like for us as a church family to say, I'm really going to stew, I'm really going to marinate, I'm really going to meditate on these, these seven truths about prayer because I want my prayer to grow. If your prayer grew and your prayer grew and your prayer grew individually and then coming together corporately, can you imagine what kind of idol trades would be shut down in the streets? This is the word of the Lord. Father, please take this to expand and extend your kingdom in our hearts to save anyone here who right now their heart's pounding, they know they need to turn to you. Would they do so? And God, that we would make even a much bigger difference in these streets, we ask in Jesus' name.